Embedded lending has been a game changer in the financial industry and China has been a pioneer in this area. In this episode, we'll focus on embedded lending lessons from China. Welcome back to Open Banking Today and Tomorrow, a podcast powered by Rabobank. My name is Jeroen Broekema. I'm your host today here live from Money 2020 in Amsterdam, Europe. Joining us here today is John Lin, a renowned expert in the field who will unveil the secrets behind China's groundbreaking success. Welcome, John. Thank you. Great to have you here. Yeah, pleasure. Yeah, it's great. I mean, we have quite some background noise, but that at least shows that we're really at Money 2020. So before we proceed, I want to remind our listeners that in addition to this episode on embedded lending in China, we also have a special episode where we explore the developments and innovations in Europe's financial landscape. Be sure to check this show out in your podcast app. Now, let's start with our discussion on embedded lending in China. But first, and before we dive into that, I really love to know who is John and what's your background. Maybe you can share a little bit more. Yeah, I'm a Dutch-born Chinese. So every stereotype you think of is true. My parents are in the restaurant business and they came here, I think, three or four generations ago. So the Chinese boy you saw grow up in a Chinese restaurant in the corner, I was one of them. And uh, I did innovation management as a background, and then I worked at Bold.com, one of the major uh, e-commerce platforms in the Netherlands for six years. And since a half a year, I'm doing things on my own, so running keynotes, helping to bring the East and the West closer together with inspirational talks and other content. And today we talk about embedded lending. Is that something that specifically interests you? Yeah, so at Bold.com, I did a lot of projects on payments. Uh, I cannot say what they are exactly because NDAs and stuff. Uh, and I also was responsible for the integration with uh, Rabobank Embedded Lending and Bol.com so that merchants selling on Bol.com could get a loan very quickly and very conveniently. So what, what interests you about, uh, about this trend, if I may call it a trend? Yeah, so what you see in China is that small, medium enterprises get a large facilitation from the big platforms to grow uh, and to increase digital inclusivity. But, but is that, you know, I, I wanted to kind of try to figure out what's, what excites you about it. But this is also interesting. Yeah. We go to that for sure. Yeah, it's like the possibilities are endless and we are still at the beginning, like especially here in the West compared to what they can do there. So the, the power of it, what you can do for merchants, but also for consumers, it's, it's great. And we are only seeing the tip of the iceberg here right now. So the, like the opportunity that are still, still laying around, that's what makes me enthusiastic. Do you travel, by the way, a lot to China? Uh, yeah, dude, COVID was a hassle, but uh, I'm planning to go next month. So it's uh, ah, glad, well. to, glad to go back. Yeah, and you already mentioned it. Uh, we only see the tip of the iceberg. Is this implying that you know China is ahead you know, 10 times, 100 times of, of what we see here in Europe? Yeah, and especially if you see what, they, uh, what kind of data they can use to get people their loans quickly. And also like how easy it is for everyone to get a loan and how good like the, the default rates are for the big banks. So it's also not that like ir- irresponsible yeah, lending. Uh, it's very responsible. It's very easy. It's, it really makes lives better. And is it, you're talking about business to business, uh, uh, like lending from, from banks or other businesses to businesses or also to consumers or both? Yeah, both ways. It works in every direction, uh, just yeah, based on the data they can access and d- that you share, because you always need to need to, need to give consent. Uh, but based on that, it's really powerful to see how a business can grow there. Is it very different B two B B two C? 
Yeah, so B2B, it's it's different because you need to know a lot more uh, from the business. So it's the large amounts, but like B2C, you can like, yeah, finance your groceries, crazy stuff like that. But for B2B, it's uh, up to, I think, 100K USD. It's, I think, within one minute, you get your loan. And for sums above that, it can take up to one hour, but then you can get two or three million dollars. Wow, that's still fast, right? To yeah. what we're used to in traditional banking. Yeah. Why is China ahead? I think data integration. So if, uh, for instance, you are a seller on Taobao, a platform of Alibaba. Alibaba has their sister company, Ant Financial, who does the lending. And they can read out everything from your store if you give the consent. So what's your revenue? What other products you sell? What are your competitors? How good is your customer engagement, your customer service? Do you pay your suppliers on time? All these data points get put into the model of end financial. And then with that data, they can calculate, okay, what can you, what's, what's the terms you can loan on? And then within a few seconds, they know your, your rates, the amount of money you can get. And there it is. And if you want to, yeah, get a larger financing, like up to a few million, they go to a way more sophisticated model where they see, okay, who are your friends? What's your network? Your suppliers, are they, do they have a good network? Like they really get to know you as an entrepreneur, as a business, and then give you financing based on them. And is this uh, the reason that this is so much more developed in China versus, for example, here in the Netherlands, is that because of regulation? Is it just they started earlier or are there other factors at play? Uh, regulation is a big factor. Uh, Tencent and Alibaba, like the big two tech companies that do this, they had like some kind of special treatment from the government where they didn't need a banking license for first few, I think, five or six years. Now they have to, have to get their banking license, so they have them, so they are comparable to companies here. Uh, but they didn't have any legacy to build on, so they had, they could apply, yeah, adopt like the Western solutions. Like a lot of Western banks have their companies in China, but they were just way too expensive for local businesses. And also, like the manual process where you have all the paperwork, make sure that you cannot do the small loan amounts. You can only do the big ones, like 100k and above, and that was also the average in China for business loans. But after Ant Financial with their, my, with their AI department made those models, everything got automated. And then you can, could give out loans of 1,000, 800 euros just within a few seconds. And that really changed the things for small businesses because they really live on their cash flow month to month, uh, making, uh, I don't know, a few chairs a month or whatever. Uh, that changed their lives. Right. And often when you think about China and when you think about Europe, you think about privacy, at least I do. Is that also a reason that privacy is taken into, you know, is there the perspective on privacy? Is a different perspective in China than it's here? Yeah. So based on like if you look at like yeah, co communism or the collectivistic way of thinking, you have no ownership. So data is also not yours or you never had the idea you had something that was yours. So giving up the privacy is of giving that piece of data to someone is easier. Here we have also like the hypocritical way of thinking like, yeah, do I have privacy? But if you use Google or Hotmail or whatever, you, you already give your soul away. <laughs> but uh, there it's, it's more transparent. You can also see within your uh, payment apps who you gave data to your transaction data. So that's really easy to see what company can access what type of data for you. Try to find that in Google or Facebook. 
But over there, yeah, you, you, the links are there, you can see it. And I think it's also like the European Union when they announced PSD2 and the new uh, identity. Yeah, how you call it, regulations. I think they are really looking at China like, oh yeah, that's why they opened it up, that's why they standardized it, that's what it did for that big country. We should do it here too and not by, by every small country on its own. So you're more a believer of the uh, Chinese model when it comes to this this uh, this topic? Yeah, companies, because it's not one company that has everything. These are all kind of smaller companies working together, sharing the data, make sure that everything talks, everything talks to each other and also still giving the control to the business owner or the consumer like, okay, what companies had access to what type of data and when did you give it? Can, and you can also like retract it. Uh, like that model is way ahead and we are also going there but at a yeah a little bit of a slower rate yeah so how much uh, how much are we behind in your view uh, five to ten years that much yeah ba- because we have a lot of politics and regulation and lobby work and like even when I saw like the PSD2 regulation coming in like yeah every bank sh- can talk to each other and we have yeah it's, it's by law okay so every bank should create an API where they can yeah a protocol to talk to each other but there was no standardization on that. So every bank has a different API. The documentation is nowhere to be found. And then people asking to each other, yeah, do you know someone working at KBC or ABN or Rabo, like a developer? It takes ages to build a connection. And in China, it's all heavily enforced by the big tech companies. Like this is the standard. This is how we should go. Like innovation is always also standardization. Uh, and that's what I do really well there. What I find very interesting in what you said earlier in this conversation is that on the one hand, you may, and these are my words, but you may give up a bit more uh, privacy or data, but at the same time, it's more apparently more transparent to whom you actually gave data and what you gave. Yeah, exactly. And the fun thing is like, if you look at the big tech companies here in the West, their business models, like yeah, if something's free, you're the product. So their business model is advertising. You're not their real consumer. So why should they care about you? They, they, they want your data. And the same thing applies to the businesses that use those propositions. Uh, but the fun thing is like, if you create an advertising campaign on Google, you, you will be scared on how much you can see of all the people that use Google and how you can target them, how you, what ranges you can use. It's, it's the same thing applies to Facebook and all their meta propositions. Uh, and, and in China, all the wallets, banking uh, or shopping propositions, it's really easy. You go to my account settings, you go to the tab privacy and you can uh, directly see all the connections and all the companies, all the apps that can read your data. And you already uh, mentioned a couple of examples from, from, from Tencent, for example, or Alibaba. Um, do you have more examples of things that you see in China that you know I probably don't know about or other people listening to the podcast don't know about? Uh, yeah, so since last week, you can pay with the palm of your hand. Oh, how does that work? Uh, so when you go to a, metro, a subway line, uh, instead of finding your card or your phone, you just put your palm, the palm of your hand on a scanner and then the port opens and you can go in the subway. Uh, but that's not the first one because that's, that's the product of Tencent. Alibaba with uh, Alipay already had facial recognition. So you could just walk up the port, look into a camera and then the port opens. So it's the competition level is very high to find easier ways to pay to verify like your identity in a subway or whatever. And does it lead to a couple of monopolies or oligopolies? Because you said uh, a couple of players got six years, kind of six years ahead without much regulation t- to make really national champions, maybe global champions, ultimately. Um, does it lead to a couple of players kind of owning the market or do you still see new entrants also coming to the market? Yeah, so within the e-commerce markets, it's, it's, we, also, we always believe like, yeah, winner takes all. 
because you have the biggest network effects, you have the biggest merchant base and more consumers. But then you had like you had JD and Alibaba, but then the third one came around and it's called Pint Pintotor and they just came to the market here in the West as Timu. But they got in three years 15% market share from Alibaba and JD just because they had a better business model, a more fun model. They attached attacked the market that was underserved, like the people who had more time and wanted to pay less, uh, where the, the other ones were in the big cities with busy people. So there's always room to, to do something. And the same thing applies to TikTok. In China, it's called Douyin, the Chinese version. Within two or three years in China, they had 800 million users. They got that from the incumbent social media platforms. So it is possible. It, it is possible even there. And then they came to the US and within a few years they had 150 million users in the US. So they really know how to run these tech businesses and also internationally. So it's, it's possible to create new competition in these markets, but you have to be smart. Yeah, you have to be smart and fast, uh, apparently, and then competitors will jump at you uh, again. Um, um, you talked already about like uh, having a different business model of this new player you just mentioned. Um, do you see these developments also used to serve people that are, as you mentioned, not in the big cities, but under, underserved uh, populations or, or otherwise people that are not as included in the financial system? Yeah, so that's where you see the government also playing a big part. Like they, they know like the, the difference between rich and poor people is getting bigger, so we should do something about that. And you see a lot of platform players going to these market going to these new markets because you have around four hundred million people in China still not connected to the big four hundred million. Four hundred million, not really good connected to the internet uh, or the digital wallets. So they are creating all these kinds of innovations to help these smaller uh, cities, smaller villages with the, all the smaller entrepreneurs to give them tech support, logistical support, marketing support, and also financing support because they need to grow their business. And instead of serving like 50 kilometers around your village, with the support of these platforms and their financing services, you can serve up to 1 billion people in the whole of China. You think that players from outside China would be able to go into that fast market like in theory, everyone wants to play there, right? But do you see other players, maybe American or European or others, going into the Chinese market? Or will it only be the other way around? Will the Chinese businesses actually do the same thing in, in, our, in the country we live in? So in the digital space, it's really hard. A lot of them came and a lot of them left. So Amazon was... To China, you mean? Yeah, to yeah. China. Yeah. So Amazon was in China, I think, around 2002. They tried for 15 years and then they left the business because they never could get more than 2% market share. eBay was there before Alibaba was founded. So they had a few years head start and they also left. Uh, and for what reasons? Was it only driven by they couldn't crack it or was it also from a regulatory government perspective? No, so the government is quite interesting. If you like comply to their yeah, sensory rules and propaganda rules, it's all okay. So LinkedIn was year, yeah, active for in China for a long time, but they left the business one month ago. So if you comply with their rules, the same thing. If you go to, go to Europe, you need to comply with the GDPR. If you comply, you can run your business. But the level of competition there is way extremer than most of the Western companies are used to. And that's, that's really hard because like Taobao, the marketplace Alibaba launched, and they knew Amazon and eBay were the competitors. So their strategy was, yeah, the first three years, 0% commission. Selling on this platform is free. Yeah, if you want to compete with that, you have to give out, <laughs> give out money to run your business. And that's something where Chinese are different. They can, they want to sustain like 10 or 15 year business cases. Right. 
And the other way around, Chinese businesses going to, to let's say, the US or Europe? Uh, it's also hard, like a lot of them fail, but you, you, you see currently more and more success stories like, uh, like yeah, TikTok, uh, Timu is going quite, quite quickly. Uh, Shein, the, cl- the clothing platform is going quite good. Uh, the car business, uh, I think alone, only the Netherlands, we have 14 Chinese car brands registered already, all electric cars. So they leapfrogged the petrol engines. Uh, with the phone business, we saw Huawei or Huawei in the most pronunciation. Uh, they were doing really well, but then Trump nerfed them. So you see a lot of businesses going really well. Uh, Xiaomi is also go really go- going really good, but like the geopolitical tensions are making it harder for them. Right. So apart from the geopolitical tension, what we all think about China and what the Chinese think about uh, the West, if I call it the West or whatever term you like to use, um, that is not the blo- that's not the blocker. It's more geopolitical. That's the blocker. Yeah, currently. And, and you see also a lot of like one cool failure story. In China, you can rent power banks. You have all kinds of stations at all subways or 7-Eleven stores. You can rent a power bank for 10 cents an hour. And they're really everywhere. So you don't need to buy one. They went to Europe. They opened a few of those power bank stations in Paris, London, and Amsterdam. And no one was using them. And in their market research, they found out, oh, wait a minute. All those Western people, they really talk to each other when they are eating. <laughs> That's a great example. <laughs> yeah. That was really the reason why it didn't work. Yeah, yeah, culture. <laughs> yeah, culture. You could have told them, right? Yeah, they yeah. They should have hired you first. <laughs> so you already touched upon a lot of things, but back to embedded lending. So could we maybe together summarize a little bit what are the main things that we can learn from China? Maybe let's say the top three yeah, things. So number one is the sh- share more data because currently... As a, as a consumer, as a business, as a bank... As the platform, like the, if you, you are the company that wants to use embedded, uh, wants to offer your customers, like in your booking so- software, uh, financing to your customers that are mostly businesses, the more data a bank has to, to know the customer better, the better, the faster, the, the maybe even cheaper the lending can be. But yeah, you need more data to know that customer. Uh, from the banking and regulation side, uh, yeah, that's more from my own experience with Bol.com. It should be easier to add more variables into all those lending models because that's what does that mean? Adding value uh, variables? Because, like, uh, for instance, like if you are an e-commerce marketplace, an e-commerce marketplace knows better than the bank if a merchant is going to be successful or not based on all the other data points they have. But how can a bank trust those data points? And can a bank use those data points in their lending models? So that's something, those two still live apart. That's something that should go to come together. So that's one is sharing the data and two, it's also regulation because banks have a lot of rules and it takes years to change a lending model. So these are two things, more things to add? Uh, and the other thing is cost, yeah, consumer adoption because of consumer, yeah, like the, the one who wants the, the loan. You should really, uh, it, it's an art to tell that customer, okay, if you give this, these data points, you will get ABC back. Um, how do you explain to them that giving up one small part of their privacy will help them grow their business or whatever, like, like creating a better conversion of all these services, really making it more easy for them. Uh, and if you can create a trade-off, a trade-off as a, in a nice transparent way, it will also help adoption. Right. Now, this is a great list of three things. Um, 
looking ahead, first of all, is China, when it comes to embedded lending, a matured space right now? Or is it actually still in its infancy? In other words, are we, are we going to get and see a lot more things? Or is this pretty much the end state for now? Yeah, so if you compare it to the Western market, it's, it's relative, relatively mature. Uh, but if you look at where they are going and their rate of innovation, like they are currently uh, implementing their uh, digital currency from the government. Into the central bank digital cent- currency. Central bank yeah. digital currency in their wallets. This will really ch- also change how things work uh, because you can apply rules on them. You know, I think I, I saw cars like paying their parking tickets on their own and stuff like that. Yeah, that's awesome. But it also change how businesses, like you can build rulings into the money. Like if a business doesn't perform these and these things, yeah, you can program whatever you rule you in there you want. Right. And other things, other trends or things you see happening in the in the near or the long term future that you you may uh, we, we may may are going to see uh, the next few years or, yeah, I think or longer. The, the democratization of business. So, for instance, now you have fashion brands that are big fashion houses and and those are large companies. Uh, but there you see with the power of platforms. Everyone can become a successful brand. Everyone can become a successful business. Like the individual becomes the business. But you have companies like, uh, for instance, in the fashion market that help an influencer create their own fashion lines. But those are really like micro businesses. Like how do you finance those? It's a whole different game. But that's the power of platforms. Super interesting. Um, To wrap things up, I just want to ask you because... We seem to be, we, quote-unquote, the Dutch or European or whatever, we seem to be uh, really uh, behind on this on this embedded lading uh, strategies that we have. But are there things that China can actually learn from here? Uh, yeah, so work ethic. I have a lot of friends and family there. Like, the pressure in society is really high. Like, how do you balance, like, having a nice life, uh, have, doing great work? So that's something they're quite jealous of here. Uh, I used to say sustainability, but since the government said, yeah, our next five-year plan is sustainability, it's, it's yeah, remains to be seen. Uh, and also, like, the the, the fundamental research part here is quite well. Uh, but the core point I want to make is there are a lot of, for every good example in China, I can give a bad one. But finding the good ones is really hard. Uh, but if you don't have the good ones, you cannot learn from each other. Uh, and I think that's something, uh, it's also my mission to make sure that we can also learn from each other and grow to each other and not apart. And that's currently happening right now in the world and that's quite painful to see. Uh, but we should come closer together and learn from the good things we do, we all do. Isn't that a great sense to end on? Uh, John, I want to thank you a lot for sharing your insights and expertise on the future of embedded lending. It was great talking to you. And I, I'm very well aware that we could have talked for hours. Yeah. It's a really interesting topic and you know a lot about it. I think uh, I think one of the things I'm, I'm taking away here is, uh, which you didn't say literally, but which I felt all the time during the conversation is, you know, people at Dutch banks or European banks should travel more to China and see what's, what's going on there. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you too. Thank you for tuning in to this uh, this episode of Open Banking Today and Tomorrow. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and stay tuned for more enlightening discussions with industry experts. And would you like to know more about embedded lending in China? Please check out the other episodes we have on this topic. Until next time, thanks for listening.